0: God, right now, again, we we pause and we just reflect upon who you are. And we ask you, Father, that you would just open our hearts, our minds, our eyes, our imagination to all that you have to show us. God, reveal to us those areas in our lives that need to be transformed or healed or touched or reshaped or reformatted or reframed around the gospel. So we pray, Father, for your spirit to work in this place. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we looked at last week that this is basically one big massive story, John chapter nine. It's all about the story of a guy who's blind. He was born blind. He was ultimately healed by Jesus. If you guys were here last week, kind of I, I, you heard I basically broke this entire chapter down or the story, I should say, into basically six chapters or six movements. We only got through the first two last week. Um, my aim this morning was to get through the remainder of them, but I'm going to do the best that I can, but I don't want to rush it, nor do I want to talk super fast to where it's too hard to follow along. So we might only make it through to the very end and then kind of leave the last chapter, last iteration for next week. But with that being said, i want to just jump right in and take a look at what we have looked at. We saw the introduction, confusion that transpired as a result of that. Jesus heals this guy's born blind. The guy wasn't looking for healing. Jesus just walks up to him. Uh, His disciples have a little bit of a discussion in the midst, asking the question, who caused this guy to be born blind? Was it his sin? Was it his mom and dad's sin? Um, Jesus basically turns to the disciples. They're like, you guys are asking the wrong question. You aren't even, even close to even knowing the work of God. So again, it shows us how oftentimes our presumptions Are misguided and, uh, well, whether they might be good intention, they are oftentimes misguided. So Jesus ends up just kind of healing this guy. It happens to be the Sabbath, which is a Saturday, which is a holy sacred day for the Jewish, uh, religious leaders, for all Jews, I should say, but especially the religious leaders. Uh, they took offense at that. Um, and then that kind of led to a lot of confusion because a lot of people were asking, um, what, who, was this guy that got healed really the guy that got healed? Like the guy that was begging for money for all these years. So there was all this confusion that was uh, basically being dealt with. And so within the midst of that, they pull him aside. They ask him the question. And then that kind of leads now to the little third iteration of this whole larger story or the third scene, if you want, if you want to think of it this way. I'm just going to jump right in. We'll read it. I'll make some comments as we go along. So if you're unfamiliar with this style of like teaching, it's really what we would just call expositional where I'm just going to read it. I'll make some comments or statements with regard to it. And let the text, the Bible, just expose itself. That's what exposition means. Just let the Bible tell us about Jesus. And our job is to just... Submit our hearts to it and let it shape us and shape our imagination and our understanding of who Jesus is. It's actually, I would, I would say it's the best way to read the Bible because otherwise we end up reading the Bible and we inject our opinions or our assumptions upon the text and that's not, that's not good. So this is a way of just letting the text inform our understanding about who Jesus is. So with that being said, we're going to jump right in to verse 13. We'll pick it up, taking a look at chapter or scene three dot 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 interrogation. Ready to go? Let's do it. All right. Verse 13 says this. They brought to the Pharisees a man who had been formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. And then he said to him, he, Jesus, this is the guy who is blind. He says, he put mud in my eyes. I washed and now I see. Verse 16. Some of the Pharisees then said to him, "This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath." Uh, for Jews, especially first century, they were deeply concerned about keeping the Sabbath. There's a there's a there's a good reason for that. Is because for the religious leaders, you got to understand a little bit about the history of the people of Israel in this context. So, number one, we we know that they were under the yoke of Roman oppression, right? So they were no, they were not really a free uh, community or a free uh, nation. They were under the um, occupation of the romans and as a result of that uh, a lot of the scholars r- were kind of asking the question how is it possible that we god's people like how could we be under the oppression of another nation like that was baffling for a lot of them because in their mind they're thinking we've faithfully followed yahweh we've done what Yahweh has asked us to do, and here we are under the oppression. We're not free to do and be the people that God wants us to be. So the question was constantly being asked, how did this happen? What transpired that led us to basically lose our freedom? So a lot of scholars and theologians in that day were opining, trying to figure out what led to their enslavement. Some of them were suggesting the reason for this is because they weren't being faithful to Yahweh. They really weren't being faithful to Yahweh. They weren't obeying the law. There were certain laws, especially they were not obeying. One of those laws was the Sabbath. So you'd imagine the religious leaders who were basically kind of the, the the moralist police, if you want. They were the ones that were tasked or responsible with making sure that the people abided by the ways of Yahweh. So you got to think of it in this perspective. So violating the Sabbath was not just simply, you know, a random thing that you would wake up kind of like, you know, the way we might think about it, like, oh, I didn't go to church for the past three weeks, whatever, maybe I'll go next week. And it's it's not the same. For them to violate the Sabbath was basically, um, not just simply an individual sin or a v- individual, uh, uh, misdeed, but it represented a larger community wide problem that needed to be dealt with or pathology that was, that was part of the brokenness. And so when they see Jesus doing things that didn't fit in their particular, uh, traditional, like, buckets of how things should be done they took deep offense at that and they actually felt like jesus was responsible for causing the the problems for them as a nation so i want you to just think about this in the bigger context it's not just individual uh, misdeeds it's it's representative of a larger community wide problem that they're looking at so they see jesus healing this guy on the sabbath and so this is one of the reasons why they take offense It goes on to say verse 16 some of the pharisees said to him this man is not of god why their logic is because he does not keep the sabbath but others said to him how can a man who's a sinner do such signs so it kind of raises the natural question if jesus really is a sinner if jesus really is in league with the devil and not with yahweh god how could these miracles of healing and redemption actually be taking place is a logical question and it goes on to say, and there was a division among them, which you can imagine, right? Some people have this opinion that Jesus might be appointed or anointed by God. Others are kind of like, no, he's from the devil. Verse 17, so they said again to the blind man, um, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes than he says? In other words, they're, they're more concerned about like, what's your opinion about Jesus? Um, he goes on to say, I, I believe he's a prophet. Um, so, this is this is important. Now, at this particular juncture, this blind guy who now sees, he's not making this claim, Jesus is the Messiah. So, again, I realize for us, you know, 2,000 years later, when we read the Bible, we might kind of um, collapse all of these certain biblical terms into one word, like, prophet and messiah and king and we just think or son of god or son of man or whatever and collapse them all but each one of them are very unique and very distinct and have a specific meaning and so when he thinks of this guy as being, or thinks of Jesus being nothing more than a prophet. In his mind, he's thinking of Jesus being like the prophet, the prophet that's uh, ordained in a like manner like Moses. In other words, Jesus has a really unique call or gifting on his life. doesn't mean that in his mind right there at that moment, if you were to ask him, is Jesus Yahweh God? This guy probably would have been like, Yahweh God, I don't know. I don't think so. But if you were to ask him, do you think he's the Messiah that's come to bring order? He'd probably been like, I don't not, I'm not even sure if it's even that far. But I know he's the prophet. I know he's the prophet. He's done some good. So that's probably what's happening here in this particular juncture of the story. Um, a couple of things we'll just make note on. And I'll kind of circle back to this. But one thing I want to at least drop in your mind to think about and consider is this emphasis that we see kind of arising. What I'm going to describe as toxic religion, toxic Religion. I'm going to distinguish toxic religion from um, honorable religion or uh, undefiled religion, the way the New Testament describes pure undefiled religion is this to you know help orphans and widows and people that are in need and whatnot. So I want to make a distinction between, because a lot of times I think it's easy, especially in modern Western circles, to be like, all religion is bad. Well, that's, that's actually not even accurate with the Bible itself, because actually... James uses the argument, actually, religion is is good. There is a pure and undefiled religion. But I I do want to distinguish pure and undefiled religion from a toxic form of religion. Or, if you want another modern terminology terminology in terms of thinking about this, think of this as a harmful ideology. So I'm thinking about toxic religion and harmful ideology as being one and the same thing. All right? So toxic religion is going to create toxic people, or if you want to use Jesus' language— bad fruit. You can't get good fruit off of a bad tree. So in other words, Jesus makes this analogy. He says, there's a tree. Imagine a tree. And from that tree comes forth fruit. Um, If the tree's bad, it's going to produce bad fruit. If it's a good tree, if it's healthy, if it's life-giving, it provides nourishment and shade and does all the good things that trees should be providing, it's going to provide good fruit. And he's making the analogy that some religious aspects are toxic some are really really good. And so what I want for us to at least begin to think about is that in the context of the story we're going to begin to see very clearly toxic forms of religion or harmful ideology. Um and we'll again look at this a little bit further um but the other thing I want for us to think about is that Jesus's words and works will always always cause us to form an opinion about him. Like This is one of the unique things about Jesus, that you can describe Jesus as a radical, right? He's a radical, meaning that what Jesus does, what Jesus says, we have to think about carefully and critically. Like, who is he? Like, should we follow him? Should we give him the sum total of our lives? Should we reject him? Should we cast him off as a psycho? Like, who really is Jesus? And this is exactly what's happened. Jesus still is causing controversy in our world today, right? There are people that worship him and call him Lord, and fall down at his feet, and give them the sum total of our lives. We would call those Christians. Um, Others are like, no, he's actually not God, and he's an imposter, or he's fake, or he's not even historical. I mean, depending upon what type of um facet where you're gonna be looking at the person of Jesus. But nonetheless, Jesus's words and works will always cause us to formulate some form of opinion. And I think it's probably worthwhile for you to just kind of pause and think about like what what is your opinion about Jesus? Who do you think he is? Who do you think he is? And the emphasis upon you. Like who do you as a as a human being, as an as an individual? uh, Maybe as a part of a collective, how do you identify Jesus? Who do you think of him as? And then another like little layer of question beneath that question is is where do you get your information to formulate your opinion about jesus is it just your opinion is it just based upon your research or did someone inform you about this did you watch a tiktok video that told you that who jesus is and this is now your new bit of information did you read a wikipedia insert that tells you who jesus is Did you have a prof that kind of told you that i know who jesus is jesus is x y and z um was it even just you know great great grandma who's pretty awesome and made really good cookies like like, what, was she the one that told you who Jesus is? Now you're just taking her opinion for it. Like, where do you get your opinion uh, of Jesus from? And, and this is where I would invite you to consider, like, the the most important place where we should be formulating our opinion about Jesus is, is Scripture. This is why we, we teach The Bible like this. Why we let the scripture just inform us as we read these stories and we wrestle with the text and wrestle with those that had, had written this and we think carefully about who Jesus is and then we ask the question, is my life and my mind and my thinking aligned with Jesus as he's being portrayed or is it in disharmony with this particular vision? And again, like I said, if it's in disharmony, then, then where are we getting our understanding or our wisdom that's formulating our opinion about him? So enough of that. I want to move on to scene four. And we're going to call this investigation. This where the story gets kind of unique. It goes on to say, Then the Jews did not believe that he had been born blind, that he had received his sight, until they called his parents of the man who had received his sight. So it's like, you know, we have no idea who, whether or not this is really the guy, or whether or not he was actually born blind, or it this just kind of a magic trick. That he acted as if he was blind, but now he's just really, it's all part of the big, bigger act. So they actually were like, let's go call the mom and dad and talk to them, verse 19. And then they asked him, is this your son? Who you say was born blind? And how he does, how does he now see? And his parents answered him, uh, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he sees now, we have no clue. Uh, we do not know who opened his eyes and they asked him, or they go and say, you know, why don't you go ahead and ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents and said to him these things because they feared the Jews. And this is an important, like, little parenthetical statement. Uh, his parents said these things. They didn't, they didn't want to answer directly to these people because they were terrified. I want you to think about the context of religion in that day. Terrified. Of these religious leaders, what were they terrified about? It says his parents said these things to him because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone who should confess Jesus as Christ or the Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, the parents said, "He is of age. Go ahead and ask him." So, I just want you to think about the context of this. I mean, talk about oppressive, uh, oppressive, uh, toxic religious context like this is this is it like it's a bad bad culture they unfortunately live in and unfortunately this is one of the byproducts of a toxic form of religion or a toxic form of ideology is that it leads to this sense of manipulation and fear and causing this culture of terror. Like, it's not healthy. It's not how Jesus operated. And what Jesus does in the midst of the story is actually beautiful and life-giving and really good. But we'll get to that in our due time. Uh, let's go on and jump on to scene five. How are we doing? You guys doing all right? Scene five, let's jump in. This is what I just simply describe as excommunication. If you're unfamiliar with the word excommunication, it just means to cast off or to castigate or to cast out. Excommunication in the context of the first century was really severe because if you were to be cut off from the people of Israel, then the question is where do you go? Right, so, you know, let me, let me contrast that with modern America. Like, let's say, for example, you go to church and, you know, church A is like, we don't really like you, we're gonna kick you out. Like, you now have 16 other options to go find another church in the area, if you want. Or you can get embittered and frustrated and hurt or wounded, and sometimes you gotta work through that trauma and that hardship because that church hurt can be really, real bad hurt and really painful. And if that's you, I, I, I sympathize with you. I'm sorry that you have had to go on, go through that type of trauma. It's really, really bad because it feels very Alienating, and uh, but again, in our modern culture, you can literally go find you know a dozen other churches if that one church just simply doesn't fit. We live in a consumerist culture and society where it's just like you know, Church B, Church D, Church F is way better than Church A. Anyhow, so I'm just going to go there anyhow. Back in this culture, there were not those options. So if you were castigated or cast out or excommunicated from the Jewish cultural life center, which was the temple, you literally had nowhere else to go. It was literally. The, the first century version of being canceled. Like, you, you not only are no longer on your social media platform, you are removed from any other form of social media, you have no voice, everything has been taken away from you, you've been doxxed; all your information has been, like, thrown out online where people can find you, locate you, they know your phone number, they're calling you, giving you death threats. This is the context of being cashed out. So you can understand why mom and dad are a little bit freaked out here. <laughs> they, they don't want to speak up because they're, they're nervous and again, if you own a business, even, this is where it gets like your entire livelihood is at stake here. They didn't have welfare programs or systems. In fact, the welfare program and system was deeply intertwined with the Jewish system. So if you're kicked out of the Jewish system and you lose your business, you lose your livelihood, you lose your point of connection, you lose your community, you literally just become subject to society at large, which is not kind. So moving on to scene five, excommunication. Pick it up at verse 24. Um, it goes on to say, so for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, right? I love this. They're they're just like, we know, we know, we know we, we we have absolute convincing arguments that Jesus no doubt is a sinner. Again, remember their logic is like, because he's working on the Sabbath, therefore he can't be of God. And therefore he must be a sinner that's making disciples of other sinners. He's just perpetuating a, a sinful rhythm that keep, keeps them going on and on, cycle. In verse 25, and then it says, he answered him, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. He says, one thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. All right, I want you to take a look at something real quick. So go ahead, look up in your Bible at verse 6. All right, verse 6. Jesus, I'm going to do a real quick like little back, background uh, thought project through here. All right, so verse six, Jesus tells us, we're told the story about what Jesus does. He he spits on the ground, he makes mud from his saliva, then he anoints the man's eye with mud, then he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Uh, Take a look at verse 11, uh, when this guy is confronted one of the very first times. They ask him, like, what happened? He tells him, here's what happened. He says that he, Jesus, made mud, anointed my eye, said to him, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. Skip on down to verse uh, 15. And then when he's asked in this, like, interrogation, he goes on, he says, he put mud on my eyes, I washed and I see. You you notice what's happening here? Every time he tells the story, it's getting, like, more and more condensed. You see that? Like, first it starts out, all these little details, you know, mud, Jesus spits, goes to the full of Siloam, washes by this particular juncture around verse 15. It says, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Now take a look again at verse uh, 25. I was blind, now I see. I love this. I love this. It's like, it's like shrunk, like the whole, all these details and this data that was like thrown out before. It's literally, I don't even need to go down all of that because all I know is I was once blind, but now I see. Like, like Jesus, I don't know who he is. I don't know why he did this, why he selected me, why he chose me that day. I was not standing out amidst anybody else. I was just a beggar there in the temple and for whatever reason beyond my comprehension. Jesus healed me. It's mind-blowing. It's literally the mystery of grace. Why does God choose? Why does God heal? Why does God bring salvation to you? I don't know. I remember the day I got married. Um, and it's hard for me to even like, tell this story because I, I, I literally, when I think about it, it just always hits me. I, I was there with um, backstage with my really good friend. We both got saved right around the same time. And I was in the back waiting for my wife uh, before the wedding got started. It was a really long time ago. I mean, we're talking like 32 years ago. Some of you aren't even close to being that old. Um, and I remember being backstage and just like waiting for our time to like go. And my, my, my best man, my best friend and myself, being back there, we were just talking about like, man. This is crazy. Like, God's given a gift, and it's, it's nowhere comparable to, like, salvation. Why did God save us? And I was, like, 20 years old. I got married. I was we were both really young. But um, the fact of the matter is I was still so moved by this, this, this grace. Like, why does God choose to bring salvation to people? Like, I don't know. I don't know how the answer to this. Why did God reach down and take me, who is lost? I don't, I don't know. I don't get it. Why did God take this guy? this particular day, with this particular malady, and just for some reason choose to open his eyes. We don't know. We don't know the mysteries of this stuff. But what we do know is that God does take people, just like you and I, who aren't necessarily even looking for God. I certainly wasn't looking for God. I wasn't waking up in the morning having an existential crisis of like, what's life all about? Who is God? How can I know him? How should I make something in my life? All I know is that I was just going about the Daily order of my life, and for some reason, God just disrupted it all, intervened, and radically just opened my eyes. This is the mystery of grace this guy's like look whether he 's a sinner or not, I have no idea, but one thing I do know though I was blind now I see verse twenty six he says they said to him, What did he do to you? I love this all right so i 'm just going to read the story and 'll make a couple of quick comments he says he did, I bet he did to open your eyes. In verse 27, he answered him. So there's a guy speaking. He says, I've already told you this, yet you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Because you want to become his disciples. This guy literally is the classic troll, like troll for Jesus. Right? So it's, it can be a biblical thing. This guy is like the classic internet troll. He's just like, what? You really want, you want to know because you want to follow Jesus too? Is that why you're asking me? I love this. It's like this guy's just, hes he's got this like personality, obviously, that I kind of I resonate with a little bit. It's like just a little bit snarky, a little bit like sarcastic. Like, what's up? You know? And so the point of the matter is, verse 28 says, and then they reviled him saying, so they obviously have this disdain towards this guy. You are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. So you can see this distinction here. They're separating. They're saying, you are this, we are this. Do you sense the moral superiority going on here? Like, we are disciples of Moses. You are disciples of this sinner. All right? It goes on to say, verse 29, uh, we know that God has spoken to Moses. But as of this man, we don't know where he's even come from. Meaning, we know his order of birth was, like, very suspicious. Like, his mom might have even been a prostitute. That's kind of what's going on in their mind. Like, we have no clue about where this guy's come from, which means that he's really got no inheritance that we should rightfully speak of. He certainly doesn't have any credentials that we can even look at and authorize who Jesus really is. So that's what's happening here. So they're discrediting this guy because of their perceptions of Jesus. Verse 29, uh, we know that this man has spoken, uh, sorry, jump on to verse 30. This man then said, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone had opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. (laughs) And therefore they cast him out. So that's. I'm going, to, I'm going to stop right there, and I'm going to just conclude with some final thoughts. You get you get the idea. Again, I, I just want to pause and just consider a little bit this notion of toxic religion. And I want to point out a couple things um, in terms of uh, thinking about what toxic religion is. Um, I'm going to read a couple quotes first before I even look at that. So the first quote i want to read is from a guy by the name of Shadi Hamid. Uh, he is a writer for The Atlantic, which is not a right-leaning or even a conservative type of periodical. And so I think this is a really fascinating quote. And in this particular article, he says this, as Christianity's hold has weakened, we know this, this has been an ongoing observable reality in the West over the past 25, maybe 50 years, that Christianity has moved from being center stage to now being off in the margin. It's not influential the way it was like back in 1950s, right? Think, you know, Beaver Cleaver and, you know, the, the days of the 50s and whatnot, um, where people would have prayer at school, whatever the case is. It's not that world that we live in today. So the question is, is like, what, what is going to replace Christian values and morals in our world? Here's this guy's particular observation. He says, as Christianity's hold has weakened, ideological intensity and fragmentation have arisen. American faith is as fervent as ever. Did you hear that? American faith. Is as fervent as ever. It just looks that religious belief has now been channeled into political belief. He goes on to say, this is what religion without religion looks like. Or if you want to think of it this this way, this is what toxic religion looks like without a form of good and pure and undefiled religion looks like. In other words, this is what happens. And his whole observation that's going on here is he's looking at the culture at large and saying that that Americans are still just as faith-driven as ever before. The problem is, is rather than placing confidence or faith in a historic Christian story or Judeo-Christian story or vision or even an Islamic vision or story, it's it's shifted now where because we drifted more into more of a secularized culture, which I'm not necessarily saying even is a bad thing. I am just simply saying that it is what it is. There are certain reasons why I think in some ways it, it, there can be some good value benefit to, uh, as a culture at large, valuing certain secular terms. In other words... Uh, Without going too much into detail on this, um, it's, it's a good thing that there's not one unified uh, church religion or state religion that, that runs everything. Because that would create its own form of oppression. But the point that he's making is that we drift even further into secular ideals. We're casting God off. It's kind of what uh, has been described in other contexts where the death of God movement, like Nietzsche, where he would identify or describe that with, with the death of God as a culture... We are, we are moving throughout culture trying to tether ourselves to some sort of form of morality. And the question is, where are we going to get our morals from? Where is that going to be conjured from? And so the whole point that he would make with this is that really what's happened is that faith has never gone away. But it's just been rechanneled. It's been repackaged. It's, it's focused upon the culture and the state at large. Um, here's another one, and I'm going to make some comments about toxic religion. Abraham Kuyper, some of you guys might be familiar with him. He was a theologian, prime minister, prime minister of the Netherlands, a statesman, uh, in the early 1900s. He says something along these lines. That's why it's in italics, because it's more just a, a reference to it. He says, all strongly held ideologies are effectively, quote unquote, faith-based. No human could survive long without some ultimate loyalty. ultimate loyalty. In fact, if you want to take the word ultimate, put that in an uppercase, and L as an uppercase, ultimate loyalty. All human beings, we have to have something which we were ultimately loyal to. The question is, what is that? And is it sustainable? Is it life-giving? Does it love neighbors? Does it do good? Does it love God? And if it doesn't, if the answer to that is no on all accounts, then it is what the Bible would describe as a false religion or idolatry. And it will always lead to the same end, which is exactly what we see happening within these religious leaders. So I want to talk a little bit real briefly and wrap it up with some final thoughts on toxic religion. We'll go back to this little slide right here. So I think as I was kind of considering trying to Think through, like, what what are some of the characteristic derivatives or what does toxic religion, how does it operate? I think at least three things. Number one, it operates in this context of external actions. It's it's very much so focused about how you act, what you do, saying the right things, having the right work, having the right certain speech. And if you violate that, if you say the wrong thing, then oftentimes what will end up happening is you'll be chastised. We see this within the religious leaders' context. They say certain things about Jesus. They get chastised. This is what toxic religion does. Um, there are, as i mentioned this before, and as the article that we just described, that yes, there are religious forms of toxic religion, right? Where it has some form of being traced back up to God. But at the same time, there are equally various forms of secular forms of religion that are also toxic. And to identify some of these things, I'll just kind of give you a list of some of them. Number one, nationalism. Nationalism. This is the idea of basically looking at America or some form of nation. It doesn't have to be American nationalism. It can be Russian nationalism. It can be Ukrainian nationalism. It can be Brazilian nationalism. It can be Hungarian nationalism. Either way, it's, it's this idea of looking at your nation and saying, this nation is uniquely blessed by God, has a unique call in this world, and any other nation or any other value system that comes from another nation that does not synchronize with our national values is wrong, and we will simply chastise it. Nationalism can become idol- uh, idol- uh, a form of idolatry. Cultural Marxism, radical feminism, humanism, transhumanism, environmentalism. All of these are various forms of isms, if you want to think of it this way, that are alive in our culture, that are various forms of toxic, what I have describe as toxic forms of secular religion. And they all share these exact same things in common, all of them. Whether it be first century Jews that are castigating this young man who was blind and now sees out of the temple or other human beings living in America or occupying space in America saying, we will chastise you, we will counsel you, we will hate you, we will speak down against you, we will find our form of moral superiority over you and bring the same form of oppression over you as as if every other form of toxic religion has always done in the past. So number one, it focuses on external actions doing, saying the right thing. Number two, it operates by way of merit. In other words, this form of what I would describe as moral superiority. Looking at the things you do, how you act, how you treat other people as either being uh, morally superior or on par. And therefore, if someone does not measure up to the same type of moral standards in which you have, we feel the the incredible uh, opportunity to chastise or destroy another person's life. Um, this is all form of toxic religion. Uh, the third thing is pride and ambition. Pride and ambition. Um, it's interesting if you look at the history of especially the Christian and Judeo-Christian religion throughout history. For hundreds, if not thousands, of years, both pride and ambition have been viewed as parts of the seven deadly sins. Pride and ambition. And, and again, the pride that would look at like, I'm better than or I have unique things I want to value or look at myself as being unique and distinct and pegged up against other people's lives. Something that I can stand above and beyond at other people and look down upon them in some form of moral superiority. So pride and ambition is one of them. It's uh, good to even pause and remember that James chapter 4 verse 6 says this, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the last thing is that all of this tends to regress towards inflexibility and criticalness. All of them. I don't care whether it's religious or Christian form of toxic religion or a form of secular religion. It always goes into this form of inflexibility and criticalness where there's no willingness to just sit down and have a conversation. Have you noticed that on internet today? Like people can't just even talk anymore? without it escalating to this degree of like, well, I hate you, and I hate you. That's fine. I'm going to cancel you. I'm going to cancel you too. And it just degenerates into this whole thing. What's going on there? Well, some form of inflexibility and some form of criticalness because it all goes back upstream to this idea of some form of religious ideology or toxic religion or some form of ideological identity That has now degenerated into something that brings about, that produces oppression, abuse, division, and destruction. Guys, it's all the same. Whether it's in the shape of a Pharisee who has all the religious garbs and walks around with some degree of pomp and honor and yet castigates People like Jesus and this guy who is healed by Jesus out of the temple or in our culture today that walks around with some degree of like, well, I see things correctly and I have the right proper moral superiority view over other people. And yet anybody that does not align with that is ultimately going to be subject of someone else's like teeth being ground, grinding them to the shreds and destruction. So the question that I want to end with is how do we break this hold of toxic religion? How do we do this? And I want to finish with this like final thought. Paul the Apostle, if you're familiar with him, uh, he was a guy that was like part of the system. Paul would identify himself as a leader in the religious, toxic religious system. And I want you to listen to Paul's own words here. And, I want, and I'll just make some final comments and I'll close it out at this. Because I think this message, this lesson, this thought... Of what we're reading here. It actually applies to all of us. Because again as we are people that live in this culture. And as we are people that scroll through social media. I would imagine the majority of us here. Maybe a handful of you do not. But the majority of us. We have certain regular rhythms or cadences in our life. Where this is a part of our world. It's really easy to become part of this algorithm or this system that's shaping and making us to be a certain type of people. Again, it doesn't mean—it it could be on the left, it could be on the right, or somewhere in between along this like spectrum. But the fact of the matter is, what it means to really be a follower of Jesus is to say, I'm going to break out of this matrix, out of this system, and become an entirely different human being that's subject to Jesus. Who doesn't grind his enemies, but dies for his enemies. Doesn't hate people that are different than him. He goes out of his way to help them. This is what we're called to live in this context. And this is what Paul says about his story and his life and his encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And I'm done. Galatians chapter 1 verses 13 through 16. And I'm reading this out of a different translation than ESV. Just listen to this. He says, I'm sure that you've heard of my story of my earlier life when I lived according to the Jewish tradition, obviously, as a Pharisee. He says, in those days, I went about persecuting God's church. I was systematically destroying it. I was so enthusiastic about the traditions of my ancestors that I even advanced way beyond my peers. Even then, God had his eye on me. He chose me. He called me out of sheer grace. Now he has intervened and revealed his son to me so that I might joyfully tell others about him. This is Paul's testimony. Paul's like, look, I, I know what it's like to live on this podium of moral superiority and judging everybody. That's not like me. And Paul says, but God intervened and opened my eyes to how broken I really was to how much grace I really needed to go deep into the very core of who I am. That Jesus wants to change me, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. He wants to take my heart that's hardened and like stone, and quickly and eagerly looks for people that are worse off than me to castigate them because when I find people that are lesser than me, I feel more superior in my own existence. And Paul says, but what grace has done is it's leveled the playing field. It's shown me in ways like I've never even thought of before. At the very core of who I am, I'm a very, very flawed and broken human being that is in desperate need of grace. And this is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus, for whatever reason, just comes into our lives many times where we're not even seeking him and says, be healed, receive your sight, be given life. Arise from the dead. And he does this out of sheer grace. Because he loves us. And he invites us to become a type of people that then live like that in this world. And I think if you're like me, you identify the fact that that's not easy to do. There are so many forces at work that just want to come against that. But we have been given the power of God's strength and his presence, the Holy Spirit to live into all that he calls us to. So my hope for you this morning, as I'm done, I'm finished, you're welcome, is to just really encourage you to think about, who do you say Jesus is? Have you had an encounter with this resurrected Jesus? Do you see? Or are you still in blindness? And if still in blindness, this is a Jesus that loves you to remove the blindness from your eyes. So I want to invite you all, how about we all stand, I want to pray over us, and then we're done. And if you're here this morning and maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're trying to discern the claims of Christ and make sense of what it is, uh, my hope would be that you would place your confidence in Jesus. I'll give you an opportunity in just two seconds here to ask Jesus to wash you, to cleanse you. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, really all you got to do is as simple as just saying, Jesus, I want to see. I want to see you. I want to see rightly. I want to see who you are. I want my heart transformed and changed. I want to be a new person. So I'm going to pray over us this morning. So, Father, right now we come to you and we just admit our need for you. And if you're here this morning you're not a Christian or you are someone that has been acquainted with the teachings of Jesus, but maybe your heart's really far and you would not identify yourself as one that is deeply transformed and changed by Jesus, I want to invite you even now to just, in your own words, you can say this in your own heart, you don't have to say it out loud, just ask Jesus to wash you. Say, Jesus, cleanse me. Make me new. Forgive me of my sins. Give me life. Transform me. And the beautiful thing is that as you just turn to him, God in his power turns to us and gives us the life that we need. And so, Father, now as we scatter, we ask you that you help us to live this message out. We want to be proper reflections of Jesus. We don't. We want to be able to identify those various forms where religion can go from being pure and undefiled into a form of toxic activity that's oppressive and destructive and hurtful and painful and abusive to other people around us, as opposed to loving and kind and generous and good. So help us, Father, to walk in a way that just identifies your love and power over our lives, and we uh, we ask for your guidance throughout this week. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.